moving. I spoke last week with Marin Lovu, who uh, had uh, already been in Africa quite a long time before I even arrived there. And she, uh, she uh, brought us up to date on a lot, a lot, a lot of what was going on around the uh, Mugabe uh, legacy. Let's call it that. Uh, he had died uh, in a fabulously expensive uh, hospital in uh, Singapore, and uh, and it was it was just outrageous that it should be so, but but it fits the context of what we were going through, and uh, and I think uh, Mary, are you with me right now? Yes, I'm here. Oh, hi, Mary. How are you? Hi, Doug. Listen, we. We we ended last week, and and both of us felt like we hadn't covered the subject nearly <laughs> enough. And uh, and uh, as I say, there he was, expensive hospital in uh, in uh, in uh, Singapore, uh, when in fact the doctors and nurses and medical staff were on strike in Zimbabwe because uh, their salaries were 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 just absolutely ridiculous for professional staff. Uh, and I think that ties into a bit what you're talking about—the economic collapse that uh, that that occurred under the Mugabe regime after whatever it was, uh, the 1990s when the IMF came in. I, what was it you wanted to bring up that uh, we missed? Okay, I wanted to talk about the origins of that economic collapse and and what the consequences were for ordinary people on the ground. Um, Yes, there was an IMF program in the early 90s, and um, that caused a lot of deterioration and discontent and the development of an opposition, first as a trade union movement and then political party, the MDC. Uh, by the end of the 90s, uh, the opposition was swelling, and Mugabe became a little bit scared, and even his own war veterans, who had been um, fighters, guerrilla fighters, were pressuring him uh, heavily. And so he decided to become a, a complete populist against all economic reasonableness and uh, agreed for those war veterans to attack white commercial farmers on their farms. And uh, this was then encouraged, and virtually all the white farmers were violently, often, thrown out of their farms. Now, these farms, yes, there was a very unequal distribution of land, and it had remained after independence, and there was no reason why this couldn't have been resolved through the 90s, but it wasn't. And uh, he now used this as a, as, a, as a platform to regain some popularity. But the problem was that those farms were the bedrock of the economy. Uh, they provided exports. They provided, of course, food. Um, they provided the base for manufacturing and the transport system and government revenue. So once they had been taken over by government and then redistributed in small pieces mainly um, amongst um, Mugabe's supporters, but also some of the ordinary people, um, they then became unproductive because there was no capital to help those people build up um, some kind of commercial farming. So they became, they just mostly joined the subsistence um, production um, 
format and well, yeah. didn't really contribute to the economy anymore. Right, because those so, white farms were, were, were based on a model of, uh, say, Canadian or North American farming, huge estates with lots of infrastructure and, uh, and, and that just didn't work when the small farmers took them over. Yes, indeed, indeed. and most of them depended on irrigation, um, which, of course, is expensive. Um, but the result was that uh, the whole economy collapsed. Manufacturing collapsed. Agriculture, of course, had collapsed. The only thing left really was mining. Um, but it meant that hundreds of thousands of people lost their jobs in the first place. Uh, secondly, there was um, a shortage of goods. And thirdly, the currency collapsed even more. Oh, wow. And there was... Then there were shortages of goods. Um, you couldn't get basic staples. You couldn't get cash. There was no cash. And th- all of this produced a runaway inflation. And what we had to do in order to survive, really, was to find ways to turn our money into foreign currency and go to Botswana, which was only 100 kilometers from Bulawayo, where we lived, um, just to buy bread, even milk and um, mealy meal, um, to to um, cook the staple. And um, this was a very big drain on people, but also many people just abandoned their posts, civil servants, teachers, nurses, and, and civil servants in various ministries, and, and flooded across the border to buy. Um, others became um, full-time cross-border traders, taking orders from people and going across and buying and coming back. So um, there was a collapse then also in civil service because people were busy running around trying to get the basics. and Or they were in long queues at the bank trying to draw cash, which was in short supply. Government then started printing um, increasingly high denominations of money till we got to the billions. And billions. even those billions you needed bricks. They called them bricks of 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 notes. Um and you carried them around in backpacks. Um <laughs> institutions brought their money to the bank in big metal trunks um with bricks of billion dollar notes or five billion or fifty billion or or eventually Inflation got to 283 million percent, if you can imagine it. And then they stopped counting. It went on after that. That was in 2008. In August 2008, they locked off 12 zeros because the computers couldn't handle the big numbers anymore. (laughs) But that didn't help because um, basically there was no value behind any currency. Um, So so behind all of this, what is Mugabe's goal? What is his objective? This is what was so mysterious, really, from these supposedly highly educated people to go totally against any economic common sense. His goal was simply to keep in power and to keep satisfying his his own core constituency so that they didn't turn against him and um, outfox the um, the opposition. But of course, he had to do this by bringing in draconian legislation, um, which uh, was very oppressive. 
And, of course, there was a lot of violence. By, I mean, by the end of 2008, I was away for Christmas. I came back in January. I went to the bank, said, how much money have I got in my account? And they said, 26 quadrillion. <laughs> and then I said, okay, how much can I get out? And they said, 5 billion. I walked away because 5 billion wouldn't have bought me a loaf of bread. 5 billion can't buy a loaf of bread. Exactly. Exactly. We had $100 trillion notes at that point. But then the whole thing collapsed. and They, they actually went to U.S. dollars, abandoned the currency. But now all of these problems created a lot of pain and suffering for ordinary people who couldn't get goods, who, who couldn't, uh, many lost their jobs, especially the farm workers um, and the industrial workers. And there was no welfare system to fall back on, of course. Um, so people began to protest, and I became involved with an organization called Women of Zimbabwe Arise, whose main goal basically was to be a voice for women, to protest, to say, we can't do it anymore. You've got to do something. And these women, it was a social movement, really, and most of the women were um, township women um, and some rural women as well. And... um, they didn't have jobs. They were mostly vendors. You know, they'd be selling a few tomatoes and a few pieces of chamoya or onions or something outside their homes or the street corner. And uh, the main activity really was, well, basically to educate and um, understand what was going on, but then to protest in the street, in demonstrations. And that, of course, was a bit dangerous in terms of um, being met by the riot police. And um, people were arrested, people were beaten. And um, I was only arrested once. I was held for questioning a couple of times. But my, my most harrowing moment was in 2008. In June, there was a very violent election. Yes. And uh, in the middle of that, um, some of our women um, in a demonstration got arrested in Harare. And they were locked up in the remand women's section of the remand prison at Chikarubi Maximum, just out, just on the edge of Harare. So I was going up there to, I'd taken one of the organization's vehicles and driven up to Harare to help to, you know, buy the food and take it to them in the prison because the, the prison food was totally inadequate when it was there. Um, and I was going this time with a lawyer um, to take the, to get their statements and brief them on what was happening. So we drove up to the gates of Chikarubi Prison, and at the gate you had to leave your ID before you could go in. So we got out, left our IDs. I was driving, the lawyer was beside me, but there were several other members in the back for a twin cab. And just as we were about to drive on to go the half kilometer or so down to the prison compound, uh, a ZANU-PF vehicle was coming out, and they saw me and told the guards at the gate to stop us from going in. We mustn't go in. Um, because, and then he accused me of being an imperialist agent and all that kind of stuff. And then, okay, so we reversed. We turned around. We were going out the gate. Um, and then he said, um, follow me, 
we're going to Mabuku, which is a, a township, um, a Harari township. Um, so I wasn't quite sure what to do. I didn't know where Mabuku was, but he, I was supposed to follow him. Then at the turnoff to Mabuku, he said, no, we're not going to Mabuku. Um, you go ahead, and you're driving to the ZANU-PF provincial headquarters. Well, this was a little bit horrifying because that was known as a torture center. And uh, so I was driving along saying, now what do I do? Now what do I do? We are discussing with a lawyer. What do we do? I didn't know Harare well enough to be able to duck and dive through side streets and so on. So I, I decided my best bet was probably to get into the center of the city and get lost in the lunch hour traffic somehow. In the end, that worked. Uh, but they tried to block us. Every time I tried to not follow the way he wanted me to go, he would he would um, come and block me from where I was going until he finally blocked the whole intersection. And that drew attention to other drivers who got very angry and realized something funny was going on because he had a big ZANU-PF logo on the side of his truck. And so when that happened, then he eventually drove off. And we, we drove to the police station who refused to take a statement wow. from us. Um, but anyway, what I found out later was there was a big rally going on in Nabuku that afternoon. And possibly what they wanted was to to parade me there as an imperialist agent. And anyway, it was quite a harrowing experience, and I was quite relieved when I managed wow, to Wow, man, that's <laughs> astounding. But it shows what was going on. Um, at such a at, at year, such a but, small level, it's not like this was a high level, or you know, they're they're willing. No, to, like I'm not a big deal. I mean, I'm a nobody. <laughs> tremendous. Yeah. So, Mary, the econom- economy has gone down the tubes. Uh, you know, the the other thing that always aggravated me about uh, Mugabe. And the whole Zanu thing, it wasn't just Mugabe himself, because he was often not even present on the scene. But once, mm. once, and I, I have in my possession right here in front of me, the, the Special International Commission on the Assassination of Hilbert, Herbert Wiltshire Chitepo, the report of, uh, and, and, and Zanu was riven with this, ethnicity thing. They, they just were always pushing one group over another group. It had nothing to do. You know, Mugabe was sold uh, in his uh, obituary as a Pan-Africanist, but if one looks at how Zanu and he uh, treated the people of Zimbabwe, I, I'm not sure Pan-Africanism is what you'd call that. Yes. Um, was he a tribalist? That's a question people have debated. Um, certainly he used ethnicity um, against the opposition um, uh, and against his own people. So the Ndebele tribe were were a minority tribe, and they had been the principal opposition until they were... That was destroyed in the um, mid-'80s. But, um, yes, he would use anything to divide people. Um, But... He in the in the 80s we saw the oppression as a tribal thing, but later on in the 2000s when I saw what was happening even in 
in um, Mashona land, in Manika land, in, in Masingo, I realized that it was bigger than a tribal thing. It was a control thing by Mugabe. Um, but no, I don't think he cared about Africa, Pan-Africanism. It was just a way to, to boost himself internationally and claim. And in fact, when they started the farm invasions, it was billed as some big anti-imperialist, pro-Africanist thing, which, of course, it really wasn't. But he was very clever at exploiting this kind of thing um, in terms of you know, inequality on a racial basis. So we've got race, we've got tribe, we've got um, oh, ethnicity, I guess is the better term now, and we've got um, opposition politics, and so on. But all comes back to his need to control and dominate everything. To the point that he had no problem bringing in uh, Ndebeli's to his cabinet uh, once he was sure that uh, they weren't Zapu and they weren't a threat. Yes, exactly. Um, Yes, exactly. Well... Mary, you've had a, a huge experience in Zimbabwe. Uh, we talked about this at the end of our conversation last week, but the, the legacy of Robert, you know, we've had another week to think about it. Where, where are we at? What, what, what does Mugabe leave us? He's left us a system, a very corrupt system uh, of control, of oppression, of poverty. Um, And it's been passed to his successor, who of course was part of that, and is still continuing to brutalize. Um, And it's very, very sad and very, very distressing the way people are living now. And again, the abductions and the beatings and so on have started. Um, Recently, there have been several disappearances and serious um, beatings of Low-level civil activists. Mugabe, the lion of uh, of Africa, Mungangangwa, the crocodile. I'm not sure which <laughs> is worse or better. Uh, it's a it's a terrible legacy uh, that they leave. Uh, uh, thank you so much, Mary. You're welcome for all thank these you. insights. Good night to you. Good night. Mm-hmm.